Welcome to this bonus episode of Make the Shift, the podcast that helps you work better beyond the nine to five. In this episode, we chat to organizational psychologist, Rachel Palmer. It's a very wide ranging chat, and we talk about the importance of creating a great shift work culture in your organization, as well as how you might approach making some of those changes. Enjoy. I'm Rachel Palmer. I'm an organizational psychologist, and I ended up here kind of by accident. I wasn't quite sure what to do at uni. I I chose something that gave me a day off, to be honest, and ended up doing psychology and loved it and particularly loved the organizational aspect. You know, we spend a third of our lives at work. I mean, someone's done the maths and said, you know, the average person spends 90, sorry, 9,000 hours at work over the course of their lifetime. So I think it's it's so important for people to have good and healthy work environments. And I passionately believe that a good working environment is, is good for us. It's good for uh, our mental health. It's good for our productivity. And, and that's the area I work in. I work with uh, companies and businesses to create environments that uh, support productivity and, and well-being. So tell us a little bit about where the passion for a good workplace came from and kind of what you think is a sort of mentally healthy workplace. Look, I think in hindsight, a lot of it's to do with my parents, actually, and watching how they work. My dad is a minister, or at least he was in, until he retired, and, and so he worked from home. So I, I saw him working in an area that was very meaningful to him, you know, absolutely part of who he was and his purpose and identity. Mum, on the other hand, she was a, a computer programmer and took oh, probably six or seven years away from work uh, while me and my sister were born. And they stopped using punch cards. <laughs> so this is a little while ago. Uh, she never retrained and she went back and, you know, she did reception work really for the rest of her career. But I was very aware that she was very fussy about who she worked for and she was very good at bringing those skills to her job as well. So, I mean, I, I would, you know, these days I would call her, you know, the queen of job crafting. She she would bring in processes and use her database and spreadsheet and programming skills in the work, even, you know, though it might have been working outside of her job description. So I've learned that meaning and purpose, having good leadership uh, and making sure that you, you like really the people that you work with and adapting the job to play to your strengths are some of the really important things about making work good you sort of look at a workplace what do you sort of wish for the people who are working there i suppose right at the center i wish that leaders really had that mindset around what they could do that leaders ask themselves how do we create environments that support mental health what is our role in supporting mental health i think too often it is still reactive So uh, leaders need to be proactive. And too often people, leaders think that ill health is the problem of the individual. They don't actually, you know, stop to think about how the work environment is is contributing to a lack of well-being or or mental ill health. And so I I suppose that's my, my big wish is that leaders get proactive and take ownership I think that's a really interesting point to pick up on. And I want to pick up on a little bit of the responsibility. You know, we we talk about sort of responsibility of mental health, quite often being at the individual level. Why do you think it matters that employers look after the mental health of their people? 
I think it matters on a, a whole host of different you know, levels. It matters because the work environment makes a difference to the individual. Certainly with diagnosable mental illness is often a genetic component, but with well-being and even even with the mental health conditions, the environment still plays such an important role. So one is organisations can make a difference to the lives of their people. On the other side, I mean, it's good for business. If you've got a mentally healthy workforce, you know, the research is out there. It's been related to engagement, to productivity, to customer satisfaction. It has an impact on the bottom line for businesses. And I think now we're seeing with the pandemic and with COVID, well-being is being absolutely impacted right, left and centre. And a lot of businesses are scrambling, you know, to get their well-being programs together. And if you're coming off a higher base of a mentally healthy workplace, you're still going to have a bit of a scramble. This is still unprecedented, but you're going to be in a better position to deal with situations like this crisis that we're in. I want to pick up on a really important point because I think it's, again, one of those things that people think they know, but might not necessarily know. Everybody sort of thinks they knows what mental well-being kind of is and what that looks like. But what is it to you? It's that thriving and flourishing. It's living, you know, without that mental illness per se. So I suppose at that practical everyday level, it's feeling like I have, you know, the resources either around me or within me to deal with the stresses that life throws at me. And I, I would like to make a distinction because I think there's sort of different schools of thoughts out of there about whether um, well-being is, you know, a continuum from mental illness or mental conditions through to flourishing or, or thriving. I tend to put the the continuum more on that languishing through to thriving because it is possible and it's not just theoretical possible. There are people, you know, many, many, many people with diagnosable mental health conditions or disorders who are thriving. They are separate things and you can be getting the right treatment, have the right supports in place, be on the right medication, all those things and be managing a mental health condition and be thriving. And I suppose that works the other way as well for people who, you know, if they are at work and they do have a particular underlying mental condition and I think there's some stigma around that because they might kind of, an employer might look at that and go, oh, well, they aren't thriving because of their pre-existing mental condition. Is that the case? Yes, and also you can not have a pre-existing mental condition and not be thriving and not be engaged and not be performing. And that can be to do with, you know, personal circumstances, but an employer absolutely has a role with or without a mental condition of creating an environment where people can bring them best selves to work. And what are the signs that are visible from outside that somebody's not thriving at work? Look, that's, in some ways, that's a difficult answer and an easy one. The difficult one is professionals spend years at uni learning lists and lists of (laughs) symptoms and and so on. And we cannot expect our leaders to understand all of those or even memorise, you know, all those symptoms and the nuances and the interplays. Again, I think this sort of plays into having a, a mentally healthy environment. Leaders know their people. And I think at the absolute core, it's very simple. Leaders need to look for changes in their people. If you know your people and you notice a change, then you can start to investigate. You know whether that's an alarm bell. It might be the talkative, extrovert, outgoing person suddenly goes quiet. It may be the quiet person suddenly can't shut up and is sharing everything left, right and centre. But, you know, you're looking for those changes and in how a person normally is at work and then 
very gently and respectfully asking those questions. That's a really good answer because I think it's difficult for people, especially for leaders, you know, you might get some leadership training, but you're there because it was good at what you were doing before and now you're thrust into a leadership position. It must be hard for a leader to sort of step into this kind of, yeah, almost this kind of mental health guardianship role. I think you're right. There are too many leaders who are good at their trade, if you like, and, and then aren't taught those those leadership skills. And that kind of makes to manager type training, I think, is is so, so, so important and, and is a key part. So if you start to sort of pull apart what makes a mentally healthy environment, I think number one in that is leaders understanding their role in that, what the work-related factors are, if I can chuck in a bit of jargon. Leaders really understanding what they need to do what the environment needs to be in order to support mental health. Because I think that's one of the things that's kept coming up for us in these interviews has been the importance of leaders knowing their workplace, both in kind of spotting the problems early and in implementing solutions. How important is that kind of open communication between leaders and their people? Look, I think it's incredibly important. When I think about sort of mentally healthy workplaces, yes, absolutely, you know, organisations need those systems and processes and, and policies in place. But I think over and above that, they need leaders who are literate, you know, in this mental health language, in the language of the work-related factors and, and what it is in the environment that supports mental health and that they have the skills and the confidence to have a conversation with their team members. I mean, the ones that are thriving and flourishing as well as the ones that may be struggling and languishing, you know, have conversations and co-design those those solutions. Uh, once you sort of got the hygiene and the protective factors in place, it's not a one-size-fits-all. And it is about being able to have that conversation and co-design what's going to work for the individuals. Now's probably the time to kind of move on to shift work, the reason why we're all kind of here. Why do we need to kind of be aware of the mental health dangers of shift work in particular? I mean, I, I guess I would preface that by saying it's not necessarily in particular. I, I think different work environments, different types of job, different trades have their own in particulars. So I, I wouldn't necessarily single out shift workers an issue over and above other types of work, but there certainly are elements of shift work that have their own specific risks and require particular considerations and interventions. The first one that, that jumps to mind is the night shift. We are creatures that need to be in the sunshine. <laughs> it helps reset our moods and our body clocks, all that sort of thing. So relentless night shifts. We're not designed to do that. And there's all sorts of best practice about maximum number of consecutive night shifts and so on. But I, I, I do know of employers that don't implement those best practices. I mean, another thing with shift work is it, it can separate us from our supports. Again, we are, you know, fundamentally social people. Um, I mean, you're often not around on weekends or evenings to, to have dinner or to celebrate particular events, birthday parties, and all those things people can be separated from. We were talking, I think we were talking to one of our nurses who said, nobody sort of really teaches you how to do shift work go to nursing school because you want to learn to become a nurse and you know seven years old I want to become a nurse because I want to work at three o'clock in the morning no it's because I want to want to help people right but it's suddenly this sort of surprise at the end of 
nursing school or when you're in your grad year, when you're suddenly, you're suddenly working shifts and everybody just sort of expects you to flick the switch. Do you think that's firstly reasonable? Is there more that could be done in that sort of Absolutely. Area? I mean, I think that's probably, I probably have to be a bit careful what I, I say because I'm, I'm a, a little out of touch what's actually taught at universities. But I, I think that for all, all sorts of, you know, things that are taught at universities, that practical working side of, of it isn't taught. But yes, absolutely. To teach nurses what the job is actually like from that shift work point of view, uni makes, you know, absolute sense. Should employers be teaching people how to shift it's, work? Isn't that is part that of the issue that we sit there arguing about whose job it is to do it and not just someone get on and do it like does it matter if you get it taught at three different times from three different sources I mean surely if if you get it taught at three times instead of no times we're ahead so who cares whose responsibility is just do it when you first show up to a workplace, you know, and you're kind of going through that induction period, what are some of the kind of red flags when you go, okay, this might not be a healthy workplace to be in? And that can be shift work or that can be general work culture. What's the canary well, Hopefully you get the, 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 the red flags before induction, although you, you do have that three to six month probation period. And I'm a big fan of that. That's both. That's both ways. That's not just the in, the employer with a, a probation period checking out the employee to see if they're okay. It's the employee checking out that the employer is okay as well. When I'm applying for a job or preparing for a job or into a job, I'm looking at the leadership. The adage is that people join brands and they leave leaders. So if you actually go in there with that sense of joining a leader, you're going to be a, a, a lot better. Um, more prepared. So you need to understand what is your leader like and is there that personal fit as well as that capability for them to create a, a mentally healthy team. And then secondary to that, I guess you're looking at, you know, that more broader values fit of the organisation. But I would say that the the leader is 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 make or break. What are some of the ways people can set the culture around good I mental mean, health? The absolute workplace? hygiene factor is you know, to implement the policy. So if the policy says that you're entitled to a break, let people take the break. You take the break as a leader. Don't have whatever it is, either false aspirations around productivity or, or that hero culture of I don't need a break. Whatever it is, if it's in policy, just do it. And if the policy's not right, then challenge it. <laughs> so there's, there's that just basic role modelling, basic behaviours. And I think there probably is that hero culture and things like that who, that might be different but might be similar. Some of those assumptions really need to be un, unpicked. You've got people who have been working, and I'm not saying it's just the older people, but if you have been working in a particular culture for 20, you know, 30, 40 years, that's deeply ingrained. And then that is taught to the next generation. And I think some of that we really need to, again, question that. It's it's very hard to change a culture from the bottom up as an employee rather than a leader. Is there anything that an employee can do if they sort of see a culture that's unhealthy to try and change that culture or change the yes, culture around yes. the leadership? The simplest way uh, to think about culture is that it's, it's behaviours, it's the stories that are told, and it's the systems. 
So the, with the systems, like that's the policies, the processes, all those things. So y- you can maybe you know, raise it with HR, raise it with your manager, find a trusted person. So it's not that employees are powerless when it comes to that. The union you know, can always get involved as well, depending what the, the changes need to be. But when it comes to the behaviours and the stories, I think that grassroots, making those changes from the bottom can be really effective, really powerful. So as an individual, you can make a conscious choice about what stories you retell. The, the, the examples of what is good behaviour, if they get changed by what is retold, that, that can be powerful. It can be as simple as you start telling the story about the dad that took four weeks parental leave when their newborn was born and how amazing that was versus the guy that took two days and was straight back at work and how amazing that was. Just being able to redefine through just storytelling and choosing very carefully who the heroes are can have a big effect. I mean, obviously, it's great when the leaders get on board and the rhetoric changes from top down and then you're going to get the double whammy. But employees, people at the front line can choose what stories that they, they tell. And, and at the same time, the behaviours. I, I won't deny if leaders are role modelling, it's easier for, for team members to behave differently. But you can still have a level of agency, uh, a level of choice that isn't going to get you fired when it comes to, to deciding what, what you want to be held up as good practice in, in your organisation. I want to sort of explore our relationship with food and shift work because there's a bit of emotional thing in there. And I think one of the things I'm big on exploring is the ability to walk past the vending machine at three o'clock in the morning to get that little dopamine hit. Can you talk about sort of why we might not want to eat particularly well (laughs) or what some of the barriers are? In terms of maybe emotions or gosh, if I had the answer to this, I think I'd be rich. (laughs) Oh, look, it's (laughs) it's so complicated. I mean, why why do we eat what we eat? Um, Probably the most um, effective way that I've come across is thinking about it from a habit perspective. I I think uh, we spend a lot of time trying to stop doing things. And as humans, we we don't like loss. We don't like feeling that we're missing out on something. We don't like it when, you know, things are taken away from us. So it's about really thinking about, well, what, what need is this filling and how do I fill it? A different way. So, I mean, maybe it's the the dopamine hit. Maybe I don't know. You can do one round of Candy Crunch or something on your iPhone instead. Or maybe it's at three o'clock in the morning. There's five people at the vending machine, and you think you're getting the sugar, but actually you're getting the conversation. So, taking a step back and looking at what actually is going on, I think, is really helpful. That leads into um, the social aspect as well that I wanted you to speak on. There's a real camaraderie sometimes around around shift workers, which is really great. But in terms of a holistic sense of social life, shift working can be pretty difficult. As I think I mentioned life. before, I mean, humans are, we, we, we're tribal, we're social creatures. Even the biggest introverts among us, we need that social interaction, albeit on our own terms. And it's interesting, a lot of my work at the moment is to do with transition to retirement. And that's one thing I talk about with shift workers is, one, how do you 
start to ramp down and open up those social networks. So you've got that bridge into retirement and it's not just this hard break and suddenly you're separated from your work colleagues, but you haven't actually created this group of or this network of people outside of work. And and if you don't take that time to to cultivate those out of work social groups, particularly as you head into retirement, you're going to be in limbo. You're going to have this time where you don't have work, you don't have home. And that absolutely does impact mental health. And we know that coming, you know, into retirement can have huge impacts on people's mental health if they don't deliberately plan that well-being side and that transition. So I think outside of that retirement context, part of it is recognizing the reality of it and and knowing that you rely on that that work group but being very conscious about it not just that being the default or the accident and then being more creative about how you create those networks outside of work and and if need be put in in those boundaries and a list of support of a family and and think about different ways that you can at least have a small number of of close friends even if you can't maintain a larger network of those social contacts excellent i think i've got one more and that was exercise if we could just get a little bit of a kind of comment from you about the relationship with with exercise and your mental health and then how that gets yeah, i mean again it's well. it's another connection that's well and truly established by research that you know exercise uh, is good for our mental health i mean it's good for emotional regulation as well if you're feeling anxious or angry or any any emotion then just getting out there and getting your heart rate up is is fantastic you know i do it all the time with my seven-year-old son, he he has a little bit of a, a meltdown. Actually, who am I kidding? He has a massive meltdown. Um, part of it can be having a, a wrestle on the floor or getting him outside, getting fresh air, chasing a ball. It's a really effective strategy. And as as with all of us, I mean, shift work potentially harder, but for mums and dads and people with busy lives and and lots of interests, caring responsibilities, all sorts of struggle to prioritise exercise. And so it is, it's it's prioritising it and and working out what you enjoy. Health and physiology specialists will say you have to do X, Y and Z, but there's no point having a perfect routine on paper that you don't do. It's better to have an imperfect routine that you do. For most of us, no, it's impossible to do it all perfectly. I'm not a shift worker and I don't do all of that stuff perfectly. <laughs> and I, I, I think that that sense of it has to be perfect comes with the cost as well, because that's the WTF factor. I didn't go for my run this morning and I ate too many carbs for breakfast. So let's just stuff it for the rest of the day and we'll start again tomorrow. And that's actually really unhelpful. You you drop your phone and you break the screen. You don't jump up and down on top of it just because it has one crack in it. You don't make it worse. You just, okay, so I had the wrong thing for breakfast, but the whole day's ahead of me. I didn't get up out out of bed and, and go for a run like I'd planned, but it's a long time till bedtime. So just reset, keep going. I think, you know, it's important to acknowledge that it's a hard thing to do, shift work. It's kind of, and I think I've asked this question before, like, is it possible? Because it seems so unnatural in kind of the way that our body works to be able to do shift work well. Do you think it's possible to do shift work, quote, I guess unquote, I, well? 
there's a couple of things I would say to that. One is that shift work is necessary. The way that society is structured, we need police working in the middle of the night. We need nurses on wards. Maybe we don't need people packing shelves at three o'clock in the morning. Maybe we could cope with that happening at 10 o'clock. But a lot of it, we need it to be happening. And so it comes with that sense of vocation, meaning, purpose that I think can drive us past or through the discomfort and the less easy aspects. So that's one thing I would say. The other thing I would say is there's ways to do it better. And and we're researching and finding and best practice is evolving all the time. So there's certainly ways of doing it better, like fatigue and, and sleep. There is absolute current research, best practice thinking about how long shifts should be, whether they are forwards or backwards rotation, how many consecutive night shifts you can do in a a row, what you should be doing in terms of commuting and and counting the commute and, and allowing conversations. So there's absolute best practice around how we can do do it better. And I think our best practice is improving as well as we learn more. So I think those things combined, we need to rise to the challenge as employers. We need to work out how do we make this necessity work for us. So for employers looking to improve, where is the best place to start? Probably WorkSafe, the WorkWell Toolkit. Uh, and other other resources. So, I mean, I know they just updated their fatigue risk management plan, for example, and they've written a, another one specifically for uh, mining. So there's some fantastic resources and, and they're getting better at better at writing them as well. They're, they're not research jargon, theoretical documents. They're, they're how-to guides. So WorkSafe, Victoria have, have fantastic tools that are free. We're getting really good at this from a a physical safety point of view. We understand that if someone breaks their leg, we need to fix it. We understand that it's better to put a big sign in front of the trip hazard rather than than have them break their leg. We understand that actually removing the trip hazard (laughs) is even better than the sign and the fixing. And that's what we need to get to from a mental health perspective. We need to understand that removing those causes, and this is a bit about the best practice attributes around shift work is removing those causes of mental distress and and mental ill health rather than giving people resilience training so that they can put up with a bad environment or teaching them mindfulness techniques so that they can cope with the stress. And look, there is a place, someone breaks their leg, you're not going to say, well, you're not going to put it in a plaster cast. So we, we need that stuff as well, but we need to get to that point of getting to the root cause and removing as far as possible and investing. Getting rid of a trip hazard can cost money. Maybe you need to get a builder in. Maybe you need to get an architect, some ergonomics expert. Again, we need to invest in these things and they can cost money. But if we can get rid of those things that produce mental ill health, it's going to have the the downstream effects of of not needing the, the, the fixing up later.
Okay, so if I'm walking around my workplace with my clipboard doing my mental health safety audit, what advice would you give to people who have to do that? Because we're not necessarily looking for something physical like a trip hazard. We're looking for something a little bit more it's probably esoteric not a clipboard. and nebulous. <laughs> unless, unless you can do the telepathy and if you can, then yeah, I want to know how because I'm a psych and I can't. It, it, this is something that as a profession we need to get better at. We're getting very good at assessing other elements of the work environment and even individual well-being, but I don't think there's enough tools out there for organisations to validly assess the extent to which their environment supports the mental health. So WorkSafe is, is starting down this journey. They, they have the Workplace Wellbeing Insight Survey, which they're piloting at the moment, and I'm, I'm excited to see where that goes. And I'd also be excited to see what else, you know, we can create in this area, we being the professional we, <laughs> around assessing yeah, the, the, the environment because I think we do, do absolutely need to do more in that area. What do you think is sort of some of the aspects that you would sort of talk about around change management and implementing some of the changes? Well, once an employer about? has got the motivation to improve the work environment and then has the initiatives, then there's an element of, of change management uh, that needs to happen in order to make that real. So change management, you know, as a term refers to changing the environment. And that's a lot of spreadsheets, basically. It's planning. So you've got your stakeholder management spreadsheet. You've got your comms spreadsheet. You've got all your, your plans and you put in place training. And it's quite mechanical in a lot of ways. The art, though, is the transition. And that's what happens inside people when their environment changes. If you don't also bring people through that transition, then it doesn't stick. And I think that's often the piece around change that is missed. It's not straightforward and it's a bit backwards in some ways. And I mean that quite literally because transition starts with an end. So, for example, you want to change the stories about heroes and, and what a, a high-performing you know, employee looks like. You want your high-performing employee to be someone who does take breaks, who admits when they're feeling tired, who role model certain behaviours. That's that's quite a big transition. So the first step in that is, is that person needs to let go. It's not that they were wrong. It's not that you're discrediting their career, but we're in a new situation with a new future and that person needs to let go. So transition starts with an end. And then there's this phase of it being quite messy and you're experimenting and you've got to be curious and some things work and some things don't. And then you get to the beginning. And that's where the environment's changed. People have been through that journey and they're ready to implement and to, to live the new way that things need to be. And so I think having that transition sit alongside the change is incredibly important. In, in your classic change management framework, you go through this process of not wanting the change, questioning the change, then grudgingly accepting the change and then doing the change. And what happens is leaders are ahead on that curve. So leaders, they get a jump start and then get to that acceptance and implementation before their team. And their team is back at doubting it and questioning it, but their leaders are going, yep, this is it. We're charging ahead and the team's behind them. And so, yes, this transition approach and mindset about it means that you can be in that messy period together. And it means that leaders are, are listening, they're questioning, they're experimenting, 
and you're doing it together rather than charging ahead with the new way of doing it while you've left your team behind. And I guess this is a good time to bring up that sort of co-design angle. Talk to me a little bit about the importance of getting participation from the people on the front lines who are going to be affected I mean, that, by change. In many ways, it comes back to your work-related factors. When people have that immersion in their role, they have a sense of control over how their job is done when they have that input. And that is absolutely an intervention in and of itself, getting that, that co-design. If you could sort of wave a magic wand and kind of improve one aspect of shift working for mental health, what would mm. that be? Interesting question. I think I think I'd come back to where, where I started is leadership capability. I suppose if I had a magic wand, there's all sorts you could do, but from a very practical magic wand, um, it would be it would be leaders, leaders having the knowledge, having the skills uh, and having the courage to manage shift work uh, in a healthy way. Make the Shift is a podcast produced as part of the Work Well in Wellington Toolkit by Wellington Primary Care Partnership in conjunction with WorkSafe. This podcast was recorded and edited in Gippsland on the traditional lands of the Gunai Kurnai and Bunurong peoples. It was produced by Jet Streamer and voiced by Chris Plumridge. For more episodes, search for Make the Shift on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. For more information about the Working Well in Wellington initiative or to download the toolkit, visit maketheshift.org.au.